Well, we are in our final full message of the cost of discipleship today, and uh, I hope that you've been tracking along. If you haven't, um, all the messages are on our podcast, and I, I really love talking about discipleship because I think there's so much um, importance that God places on discipleship, and I so hope that you are catching a hold of discipleship in our church. Now, next week, we're going to do something a little bit different, uh, where Beck and I are going to, not so much couch time, but we will just have a conversation about discipleship. And really, we want to shape this conversation around the questions that you have, anything that you want to hear a bit more, maybe about the heart uh, that we have for discipleship, whatever it is, send those messages, uh, send those questions uh, into us on that phone number so that we can craft a conversation um, that is relevant to where you are at and where we are going. We want discipleship not to be something that we know about, but something that we're living out. And so uh, this conversation is just hopefully a way that we can do that. Um, And so we would love to have your questions. It doesn't matter um, if it's about any of the messages. It doesn't have to be about the messages. It can be just about discipleship in general, and we would love to have a conversation about that. Anyway, today, let's look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. This is a parable that Jesus um, uh, speaks out, and He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it." And this is a really famous parable, right? Most people have heard of this one before. In fact, when I was growing up, there was a song about it. Does anyone know the song? You want to sing it with me? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And yeah, we've got some Christians who have been in the house for a long time. I think it's great that you know you grow up, you learn these songs. I still remember half of it, um, and and it sticks in our mind. And it's a really simple message: you build your life on Jesus's words, and you will stand firm. You will stand strong. The floods will come, the rains will come, uh, the winds will blow, but you will stand firm. You know, the other day I was looking at uh, the, a news. Um, um, Instagram post, and it showed the floods in Queensland, and, and what had happened was that it actually ripped out the road. You could literally see the pieces of the road scattered in the field next to the road because of how devastating that flood was. And, and so we're talking about some pretty devastating uh, circumstances that can happen in our life, but if we base it on God's Word, we will stand firm. Pretty simple, right? Well, I know it's really simple, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into this because I think that what we need to understand as Christians is that we are on a search for truth. All of us need to be on a search for truth. And Jesus talks about it in this parable, and He uses this metaphor of building a house, but then He says, if anyone does these words, what does Jesus mean by these words of mine? Well, if you look specifically at the context of what Jesus was saying, He was um, uh, at the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded sermon that we have of Jesus. And basically, it's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus went to a mountainside, he sat down and he began to teach people. And in our Bible, it's about three chapters long of teaching. And Jesus talks about a huge range of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. He starts off with the Beatitudes. Many people will know about the Beatitudes. Bless uh, uh, this person for this reason, and then that person for that reason, and then he blesses a whole bunch of people. And then he goes on, and then he talks about being salt and light of the world. And then from there, he talks about some really heavy stuff. He talks about murder. He talks about uh, uh, lust. He talks about anger. He talks about uh, divorce. He talks about generosity. And then he goes on. Uh, by the way, from there, he talks about the Lord's Prayer. He talks about fasting. He talks about anxiety. He talks about judging others. Jesus took the opportunity to teach on a whole range of different things. So was Jesus saying you build your house on these three chapters of the Bible? Is that what Jesus was specifically wanting his disciples to catch? Well, I think that what we need to realize is that the Sermon on the Mount whether it really was one sermon or Matthew decided to collect a whole bunch of sermons and put it into one long thing. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus was teaching people about what kingdom life is supposed to look like. That's what it is all about. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't Jesus kind of going, oh, by the way, don't kill people. Oh, by the way, don't even get angry at people because you're killing people. What? No, 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 no. He, Matthew wanted to capture the fact that Jesus was talking about the kind of life that disciples should have. And so when Jesus is saying, he who does these words of mine, he's talking about a person who has searched out and is living out the kingdom life. Does that make sense? And if you need to refresh your memory about why the kingdom life is so important, that's last week's message. I'm not, I don't have time to get into that today. But Jesus was wanting people to build their lives on the truth of God's kingdom. That's what this parable is all about. You guys don't seem very excited about that. I was kind of excited about it. Because, you know, Jesus is actually giving us a promise that when we base our lives on kingdom principles, we have a confidence, we have a surety, we have something in us that is not going to be shaken and stirred by everything that is happening in our world. You know, I, the thing that I get really annoyed with, with Christians, and I'm saying that because I'm a Christian, so I'm allowed to say this, <laughs> is that Christians get scared about stuff. Why? Why do we get scared of stuff? Why do we make decisions out of fear? It is because you're not building your life on kingdom principles. If your life is based on kingdom principles, fear has no room in your life. If you're finding yourself shaking, it's like, check the foundation, people. Is it rock or is it sand? Now, I want to go a little bit deeper here because Jesus uses a very specific picture here. He says, the rains fall, the floods came. Is that the actual words? Let me just check that. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew. Now, why did he specifically say uh, the rains came, the floods, the... 
The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew. I think it's because he was speaking to a Jewish audience who knew the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, extremely well. And whenever you mention flood, I think they would have thought about Noah's Ark, right? The rains came. In fact, I think I always get mixed up with the wise and foolish builder song and the Noah song because both of them are the rains fell and the floods came and everyone got scared and, and all that kind of stuff. I think that when Jesus was using this analogy, he was very specifically talking about, or he was trying to be, bring people's mind back to the flood. Why was he trying to bring people's mind back to the flood? Because the flood represented what happens when people choose to live according to chaos. You see, what happened in the Noah story is that God saw the wickedness, the chaos inside of people's lives. It was a, a journey that was taking place because sin had entered the world, and people, what was sin all about? We spoke about that last year. Sin is about people wanting to choose how to do things for themselves. And that's just the basic definition of sin, is us wanting to do life by ourselves, without God's uh, direction, without God's will involved in it. And so as things progressed from the fall, we got to a place where there was so much chaos because people all wanted to live their own reality and their own truth. And so what happened is that God sends this flood. However, we think that the flood is, is this arbitrary punishment from God, right? Many of us think it's quite scary that God would send this flood to basically wipe out all humanity except for this family and this ark. However, the language of the Noah story isn't so much that God arbitrarily chose. It's like, hmm, what is going to really hurt these people? Let's flood. No, no, it wasn't that. See, in the Jewish mindset, God created the world out of chaos waters. At the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that the world was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over it. The word formless and void, it actually is, a better translation would be, was chaotic waters. Because that was the mindset, that was the frame of mind of the people of that time. They didn't really have signs to inform a lot of different things. And so how they saw the world was that in its pre-creation form, it was chaotic. It was chaotic waters. However, God's Spirit hovered over the chaotic waters and made it life-giving waters. Isn't it amazing that water has this ability both to sustain life, but also has the ability to take life? It sustains life when it is in an ordered fashion. It comes out of a tap into my cup, into my body, and it doesn't drown me. It's contained. There is order to this. However, when there is no order, it becomes destructive and extremely dangerous. The flood wasn't something uh, that God arbitrarily, arbitrarily chose. That would be really strange on the recording when someone's there, ah, oh, what happened there? Um, God just allowed people to have the world that they desired. You desire chaos, you have the decreated world to live in. 
You don't want my order, I will remove my order. God was actually giving people what they wanted. And so when we read this parable about the wise man and the foolish man, I think it's really important that we understand that God is not just saying you are building your own life. You get to build this fancy house on the rock as long as you obey these commandments. No, no, no. That is the wrong interpretation of this parable. The interpretation of this parable is that the man who has decided that his life is going to be ordered by God, it doesn't matter what chaos is happening in the world, you will still have a place to live. But if you decide to live according to the chaos of this world, when the chaos of the world reaps the consequences of its chaos, you get those consequences too. And so what we need to realize that Jesus was saying here is that we need to be wise and to seek out the truth of kingdom life in order that we can order our lives. It becomes rock. You know what's the difference between a rock and sand? Rock has got order to it that brings it strength. Sand is like, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go here. Like, it doesn't stick together. That's what we need to be thinking about. Does the truth that I understand, does it actually stick together and become strong? Or does it scatter me and make me all like floaty McFloats? The problem with Christianity is that we have decided that the Spirit of God can teach us so much that I can do whatever I want to do. The problem with Pentecostal Christians is that we love the voice of God so much that we decide what God says to me rather than understand what God has said to all of us. God will not tell you something contrary to His Word. And why is it that we think, right? I'm sorry, I'm getting on a roll here. But we think that I can interpret the Bible better than anyone else. Why do we have this pride when it comes to the Word of God that we decide that the early church from 2,000 years ago, many of whom actually walked to Jesus, got it wrong? And suddenly I'm reading this, oh, oh, you stupid old people. You know, this really challenged me a little while ago. I was like, didn't the Holy Spirit speak in the early days? Didn't the Spirit speak a thousand years ago? Didn't the Spirit speak 500 years ago? The Spirit's speaking to me, 100%. But I'm one of billions of people that the Spirit is speaking to. My search for truth isn't my search for my truth, it's my search for kingdom truth. And that is hugely important. However, what we need to realize is that our search for truth is really difficult because of something called perspective. I've skipped over a whole bunch of my notes. I want to backtrack. We'll talk about perspective in just a moment. I want to give you a couple of verses that are really important. John 17, verse 17, Jesus was in the middle of his longest prayer recorded that we know of, and he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What does sanctify mean? Sanctify means to go through a process of becoming more Christ-like. 
How do we become more Christ-like? Another word for becoming Christ-like that we use in our church is discipleship. We become disciples because we are trying to become more like Christ. So we need sanctification in our lives. How do we be sanctified? Because there is truth. Where do we find truth? Your word is truth. Now, Jesus is even stronger than that. In John 8, John 8, 31 to 32, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I love that second half, and we quote that, oh, no truth, and truth will set you free. Where does the truth come from? It comes from Jesus' word. Do we value Jesus' word? Do we abide in it? The word abide means to stay. And that's why we're doing this memory verse challenge, and some of you might have heard about that, but we're going to memorize 10 different passages from the Bible this year, around 10 core truths that we hold as a church. Why? Because when we memorize, we stay. The passage stays with us. We have to sit with it. And I love that we've got this section out where people are discussing and sharing what God is revealing to them as they stay in the Word. What happens when you stay in the Word? You get revelation from the Word. The revelation from the Word transforms you. It brings life to you. And what does it do? What does Jesus say? It brings you freedom. I wonder how many bound up Christians there are in the world because they're not abiding in the Word. I wonder how many Christians are bound up by fear, by anxiety, by depression because they do not base their lives on God's Word. Now, if you struggle with fear and depression, anxiety, I'm not saying that you're a bad person. I'm just trying to encourage you. Find the truth. Search for the truth. Because when you find the truth, your life aligns and it becomes strong, and something happens with us. The problem, as I mentioned a few moments ago, is that the search of truth is both aided and stopped by something called perspective. There is this story told of three blind men who have never met an elephant before, and a guy takes them to the elephant. I think some of you already know where the story is going. One was taken to its um, head, one was taken to its body, and one was taken to its tail. Poor, poor guy. <laughs> and so the first blind man, he feels the trunk of the elephant and he goes, oh, an elephant is long and it's round and it feels really powerful, kind of like a really big snake. And then the man in the middle, he goes and he feels the body of the elephant. He's like, no, no, it's not like a snake. It's like a house. It's a massive, strong house. And the final guy who's been feeling his piddly little tail goes like, what are you guys on about? He's a little tiny worm. Well, maybe not a tiny worm, a really long worm, but a worm nonetheless. And, you know, our society today would tell us that each of these three men were speaking truth. Because out of their perspective they have encountered something, and that something is their truth. And that is our problem with our perspective, because all of us have different perspectives. Our pe perspectives comes because of the experiences that we have faced in this world. 
you know, Beck and I, as adoptive parents, we understand that grief and loss is something that Sam is going to have to work through all the days of his life. In fact, just recently we found that in the month of February, which is the month that he was first placed with us, is a season of joy for us, but it's a season of grief for Sam. And so we realized that over the last two years, when Feb comes, Sam will have amazingly fun, full of joy days, and then he has some days where he cries at everything and doesn't want to let us go. At first, we didn't realize what was happening. Well, he experienced a loss that was profound. And that loss means that whenever it gets really warm or something triggers off these memories, he's like, he's insecure. It's, it's emotional. It's there. And he has to learn how to work with it. It's his experience. Now, many of you have got experiences that mean that there are certain things that you are worried about and fearful about. There are certain things you don't like. There are certain things that you really like. And, and that is all the perspective that we bring to our search for truth. However, what we need to realize is that if every single one of our pursuit for truth results in our own perspective of truth, we will never get the full picture. We end up with sand and not rock. And our culture will like to tell us that because you've experienced that, that is now your truth and it's sacred to you. My perspective is sacred because I felt pain. I suffered to get that truth. And so you better respect my truth. You know, over the last few years, I've been certain, uh, 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 going, understanding trauma a lot more, and I, I get that perspective. It's like, if you don't walk in my shoes, you don't get to tell me anything. I get that perspective. But is it helpful? Is it helpful for us to have a tail theology, or a trunk theology, or a body theology? Or wouldn't we benefit from having an elephant theology? Why would I only want a part of what God has for me rather than the fullness? And so we need to be careful in our pursuit of truth because my experience will lead me to see certain things in the Word of God, which is precious and powerful, but it also has blind spots. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. I want to give you three things in your search for truth. I hope that I put forward the importance of the search for truth. And the first is this, that there is an absolute truth. If there is an absolute truth, then don't call it truth. There's relativity. Call it that. No, no, no. There is truth. And if it's truth, it's absolute. It means that even if you've got a different perspective on it, the core the core message of that truth must stay the same. And you know what? God invites us to find it. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, it says, It's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Now, in the Bible, power and glory are somewhat interchangeable. So it is the power of God to conceal things. I was thinking about that. It's like, why did God use His power to conceal things? Let me put it this way. Because God is so powerful, when He creates, it's always beautiful, wondrous, and complex. When I look at Nebi, he's a wonderfully complex, handsome man, right? But guess what? There are layers to this ogre. (laughs) He's got layers, man. 
And I'm talking about skin layers, you know, you've got blood stuff. And at the end of the day, there's all these cells, but in the cells, there's more stuff in them cells. You're like, God, why couldn't you have just made Nebi Nebi? He did, but Nebi has a complexity to him because in God's power, in his glory, when he created Nebi, there was a complexity that adds to the beauty of who this man is. And then what does God say? It is the power, it is the glory of kings to search it out. God's not saying, I've made this so complex so that you will never understand it. God said, I'm giving you the opportunity, the adventure of a lifetime to search for how these things work. I think it's great that we've got scientists that are discovering things about the universe, about life. I love that they are trying to discover things. I love that there are philosophers that are trying to grapple with truth and what does things look like. I love that there are all of these aspects that we get to search out and understand because God invites us to search it out. Christianity is not against questioning. Christianity is for, is for questioning. It's a for. It is, it is based on people digging deep and trying to understand the truth. Because God invites us into that kind of life. However, when we go on this journey, what we need to do, point two, is to acknowledge that I have my perspective because of my experiences. Last year, I learned that there's actually this whole thing that many Christians are caught up with, and it's called a schema or a mindset, a perspective of self-sacrifice. And I was caught up in this for, for many years because when I grew up, I was taught that if I want to be great, I need to be a servant of all. It's in the Bible. I need to put other people's interests in front of mine. And so I did that. And I thought that the Bible only taught that I needed to sacrifice for someone else's benefit. That is the schema of self-sacrifice. And so when I had that mindset and that filter, because I thought that that's what the Bible said and that's what I needed to do to be a good person, it was so automatic that when I read the Word of God, I did not see that God was teaching me about boundaries. I did not see that God was teaching me about rest. I did not see that God was teaching me about health. Why? Because all I saw was self-sacrifice. But the moment I acknowledge, hey, I have this bent, I have this way of reading the Word of God that makes me gravitate towards that aspect of truth, it allows me to then go, I've got blind spots. I've got a box, but there's things outside the box that I don't understand. And there are things outside the box that I don't like. I don't get. Why? Because when we build boxes, we like to fill our boxes. It's called confirmation bias, people. When we think we know something about the Word of God, we end up really trying to ensure that there is the only perspective on the Word of God. Now, I'm saying this with great care because I'm not saying that every perspective is accurate and true. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you need to realize that you've got a perspective and you read the Bible through that lens. Another perspective that I've grappled with is that for many years, I thought that the Bible taught that women are not allowed into leadership, especially in the church. I thought that men were the only ones that were meant to be leaders. And then I went to Bible college where they started to teach me that that is not the only perspective. And the other perspective isn't just that 
we like women, and there are a lot of women that want to be leaders, so let them be leaders. I discovered, that's what I thought that the other group of people would be saying. Because I have my box, right? And I stayed in my box, and I thought that other people had stupid boxes. You live in your stupid box, I'll live in my well-thought-through logical box. That's what I thought. I was stupid. And so I started looking to the other box because I started to see that the arguments that they were making were actually really, 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 really good. I started to search it out. I saw that I had a huge blind spot in understanding the Word of God. Let me give you one thing. One of the things that people will say that women are not allowed to be leaders is because I think Paul said is because uh, men were created before women. But do you know that in the Bible story, who gets created first or who comes first often becomes last? Cain and Abel. Abel came second and he's the one that's favored by God. Yeah? Jacob and Esau. Esau came first. Guess who gets the birthright and the blessing? Jacob. You know, Joseph was one of the youngest in his whole family. He was meant to be a nothing. What does God do? He raises them up. And you know what, human beings? Animals were created before you. Birth order doesn't matter. I wonder whether Paul was making a joke about that. Well, like, men came first, so let them lead. Oof. I think he's like, ha, 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 ha. Now, we could go a lot deeper into that. I haven't done the research. Don't ask me yet. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that there was another whole perspective that I did not want to see because of my blind spots. So when we approach the Word of God, we need to acknowledge that I have my perspective. To be willing to see things that support our perspective, absolutely. The search for truth isn't meant to be blind. But at the same time, go, there are blind spots, and I might need to grapple with that a little bit. There are a lot of Christians that walk away from the faith because one day something came from their blind spot and smacked them on the head. And they went, I never heard any teaching on that. I don't know what to do about that. No, no, no. We want to be rock Christians. We don't want sand Christians. We don't want scattered theology. We want to build on the rock. And so that's the thing. We need to acknowledge that I come with perspective. I come with experiences. I cannot divorce myself from that. And so that leads to the third point. We need to be humble. We need to be so humble. God says in Psalm 25 verse 9, what the psalmist says about God, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. One of the things I've learned is that whatever is in my blind spot, I tend to think is stupid. What I've needed to do is go, I can be stupid. I can be ignorant. I can have issues. Now, there's also the point where we, when I've searched out, sometimes the perspective that I have actually is far more logical and far more cohesive. And so, yes, I reject certain things. Just to let you know, after a lot of study, I reject the idea um, that the mark of the beast is the vaccine. Why? Because the mark of the beast in Revelation is symbolic and not literal. The whole point of the mark of the beast in the Bible is that it is swearing an allegiance to Antichrist. 
is swearing an allegiance to not God. So by taking a vaccine, have I said to God, stuff you? I don't think so. <laughs> Hasn't controlled my mind. If anything, I think I'm a pretty good, solid, faithful Christian after taking a couple of shots. This podcast is going to get me in trouble. <laughs> but I searched it up. I made sure that my blind spot wasn't a blind spot. I did a readings. I listened to people who are smarter than me. I listened to people who don't live in my box in order that I can explore and go, what is this? And I went, you know what? I need to be humble in my pursuit of truth. You know why I think God instituted discipleship that is meant to be people leading people? It's because of humility. It's because when Jesus himself teaches you, I think you tend to be pretty humble. But when another human being says, hey man, you got a real blind spot here. Oh! How dare you? Don't you know what I've been through to be here today? You don't get to tell me truth. You don't know my truth. Why do we do that? Pride. We want things our way. We, we want to protect ourselves. It's a very human, natural response. And so God says, you know what is going to whack that out of you? A human being to constantly point out your blind spots. Is that why you're not seeing this? Ah, oh, again! I love being discipled and I hate being discipled. I love the results of discipleship. I hate the process sometimes because it makes me feel dumb and useless. So like, why have I still not got this? But then it makes me all the more humble and go, God, I need this. Do you know when we're singing songs of God's truth? How are you reacting to that? You know, I was thinking about that. When we sing words like, your goodness is following, is chasing after me. I know sometimes I'm thinking, I don't feel that right now. And there's something in me that wants to wall up at times when we are singing songs of God's goodness and grace. Because I'm not seeing it, I'm not experiencing it. That's not my truth right now. I've learned that worship sometimes is so powerful because it makes us declare the truth even when I'm not feeling it. What we're doing at Upper Room is not for you to worship because you feel like you're loving God right now. What we're doing at Upper Room is we're declaring the truth. So whether you are liking it or hating it, you get there because when you declare the truth, you are humbling yourself and saying, I'm coming under your truth. That is something that is so important. Can we get the band up this morning? I know we've gone a little bit over time. We had couch time planned and I didn't know how to cut this message down any further. But I want Christians to be building their life on the Word, on truth, to be sanctified by truth, to have the building blocks in your life based on truth to search for truth, to ask questions. I hope that we're a church that we're not scared of questions. We're not scared of doubt. Because doubt is there because perhaps our experiences are not matching up with how we understand God.
sort of process of working through doubt is going to help me to understand what's in my blind spot. God, how can you say you are good when I'm going through this? God, how can you say you are good when there is suffering? I place myself in the shoes of a Christian who is living in Ukraine right now. How can I sing? Your goodness is following me and that you are faithful without end. How can you do that? Our search for truth is a grappling, it's a wrestling, because sometimes the truth of God's Word is hard to reconcile with our reality. It's true. But that wrestling makes us strong. That wrestling helps us to get to a place where we see more truth, more revelation from His Word. It helps us become strong. I just felt today that as we were singing that song, that God wants some of you to declare that even though you don't feel it. To declare the words of this song because the truth of these words is actually jarring with your reality right now. I don't know what pain you're going through. I don't know what is your suffering. But what I do know is that God is faithful and God is true. And that even though things get tough, even though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, He's still with you. His rod and His staff, they comfort you. He continues, he continues to lead you to still waters. He continues to refresh your soul. He is good and His love and His mercy follows you all the days of your life. So even if you're not feeling it, even though it might be a struggle inside of your soul, I hope that you're able to continue to sing these words and say, God, help me to reconcile the fact that you are good, but right now life is bad. Help me to reconcile the fact that you are loved, but right now I feel alone. Help me to reconcile the fact that you said that I will have power, but right now I, don't. I feel so weak that there's nothing left in me. Come on, let's stand, church. Come on, let's declare these words. Let's sing these words. Let's, let's lift them up. Let's allow this truth to wash over you. Come on, church. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.